Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this event. My name is Patty Jane Geller, and I'm the Policy Analyst for Nuclear Deterrence and Missile Defense at the Heritage Foundation. It's my pleasure to be hosting today's event on the current state and future for Homeland Missile Defense. A couple of housekeeping notes before we dive in. Please submit your questions throughout this event in the questions box on the side of your control panel. Be sure to tell us your name, affiliation, or where you're tuning in from. We'll get to as many of your questions as we can at the end of the event. We'll also be sharing the recording of today's conversation with you within the next couple of days. So today we're going to be talking about the path forward for Homeland Missile Defense. The United States has a system of missile interceptors in place, but as the missile threat from U.S. adversaries grows and these systems age, the administration has been working hard to define a clear path to ensure protection of the homeland over the next decade and beyond. I've had the opportunity to complete a new report on the issue where I've explored how the U.S. arrived at the limited homeland defense system it has today, what today's system is missing, and what Congress and the administration need to do in the near term to move forward. But today, we're fortunate to have some esteemed panelists join us to talk about these issues. So I'd like to invite them to join us on screen. So first, please welcome Vice Admiral John Hill, the Director of the Missile Defense Agency. Admiral Hill has served as the MDA's Director since June 2019, where he has been Deputy Director since 2016. We're thrilled he's able to join us today. I'm also excited to welcome my friend and colleague, Rebecca Heinrichs, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute, who specializes in nuclear deterrence and missile defense. So we're going to kick off uh, today's event with some comments from Admiral Hill, who will highlight some of MDA's accomplishments and goals for Homeland Missile Defense. Then we'll move on to a moderated conversation and save some time for audience questions at the end. Uh, so with that, Admiral, please start us off. Hey, uh, good, good afternoon. Uh, it's great to be here with uh, you, Patty Jane, and uh, it's great to see you, Rebecca. Thank, thanks for uh, this engagement today. Yeah, it's a great opportunity uh, to talk about Homeland and Missile Defense. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things, but when you focus in on the Homeland, uh, to me, it's exciting. Uh, I want to talk to you today about where we are right now and what our plans are for the future. So to help us uh, plot that course for the future is where we're going. Now, the capability uh, continues to evolve as we continually assess the threat. Uh, and we're hand in hand with the intelligence uh, community. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, it may have been on this broadcast uh, where General Hyten recently uh, said the following, I think it was on the 12th of August. Uh, I think our Homeland Missile Defense with respect to North Korea is strong. We need to continue to advance, to take care of advancing threats in North Korea, potential threats in Iran and threats that might come from other places as well. So a layered Homeland Missile Defense capability, uh, it's an effective means to achieve deterrence. And I'm, I'm gonna talk to you about that uh, today. And if required, uh, we can use that same system to protect the United States against rogue ICBM threats. And we continue to sustain the currently deployed fleet through obsolescence mitigation. And those are big words, I can get into that uh, later. Uh, stockpile reliability testing and planning and execution of flight and ground tests. We're also making great progress despite uh, restrictions put in place uh, to fight the global pandemic in the construction of a new missile field. Uh, construction also continues on the long-range discrimination radar at uh, Clear Air Force Station in Alaska uh, for persistent tracking and discrimination capability to improve defense of the homeland against long-range ballistic missiles. And that initial fielding is tracking for next year. 
this past spring, the department initiated a new effort to develop the Next Generation Interceptor, or NGI as we call it, which is an all-up-round approach, meaning it's a new booster with an integrated kill vehicle that'll be built as part of the overall weapon system. Now, once fielded, this new Homeland Defense Interceptor will be capable of defeating expected threat advances into the 2030s and beyond. NGI will meet survivability and reliability requirements with a design that addresses the evolving threat as we remain closely tied to the intelligence community. Industry has submitted their proposals. Our expert cross-organizational team has begun the process of source selection, so that's a pretty exciting time. We had a, a very short uh, delay in getting the RFP out and a very short uh, delay based on feedback from industry to, to actually provide those bids, but they are on the table now and we are doing source selection. Now we're also investigating the possibility of deploying layered homeland defense for additional opportunities to engage long-range missile threats. This means we are investigating the potential of existing proven weapon systems, such as Aegis Ballistic Missile Defense using the Standard Missile 3 Block 2A and the THAAD weapon system to contribute to homeland defense. We're also assessing the addition of new sensors with associated command and control, battle management, and communication upgrades to support a robust layered homeland defense architecture. Now, later this year, we'll conduct the first Aegis SN3 Block 2A intercept of a simple ICBM. We're also assessing upgrades to the THAAD interceptor for testing against an ICBM. So I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Thanks. Great. Thanks so much, Admiral Hill. Um, Rebecca, I'd like to turn it over to you. Do you have um, any comments you'd like to make um, to start us off? Sure. Thank you so much for inviting me here. Uh, Admiral Hill, thank you for your remarks. Um, I appreciate you referring to the uh, conversation that I just had with uh, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Hyten. Um, and for viewers who may have missed that, it's on the Hudson Institute website. And I think that was a great conversation and it, and it kind of set the table for the conversation that we're going to have today. So thank you for referencing that too. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to add um, any more information. I think that the Admiral is going to be the one who's best suited to kind of give us the, the, lay, the lay of the land about what, what direction we're going and what challenges we might face. A couple of things that I, I just would like to add, um, if I can, um, as we kick things off here is, one, um, I look forward to hearing both of your thoughts and considerations on timing, if we're going fast enough. We, we, we did have some delays in terms of, uh, of in fact, I, I don't think it's too harsh to call it kind of a derailing of the pace that we were on because of the cancellation of the RKV and the plans to go to a, a different direction uh, to move forward with the next generation intercept um, capability um, to, but the, that, that puts us in a spot, a challenging spot, because we, the, the President of the United States had wanted to deploy those 20 additional interceptors um, in, in Fort Greeley, Alaska. And at the time, if we remember the context of the threat, it was because the, the threat was continuing apace, in particular from North Korea. And though the administration is pursuing kind of aggressive diplomacy while sanctions are in place, the the, um, the North Koreans have ceased their long-range missile testing, but their their shorter-range missile testing has kind of come and gone. And and as far as I can tell, there's no reason for us to believe that they've stopped improving their nuclear missile capability, even as they've stopped and slowed down um, the, the the testing that we've seen of their delivery systems. And so it's a threat that we have to keep our eye on. And so we want to make sure that we're continuing at an appropriate pace for bolstering homeland missile defense. So I look forward to hearing. Um, the director kind of talk more about uh, timing and pace. Um, some thoughts about underlay. Uh, excited about the possibility of the SM32A having the, the um, potential of providing an, another additional complementary ICBM intercept capability. But also, you know, I know that in the um, 
there was charts that you had at, at the SMDC conference, I think, and um, it was a very nice chart, but it, it showed that, you know, that, that this capability is still a complementary system to the current GMD system. It's not going to replace it, and it doesn't have the same inherent coverage capability that the current system has. I think it, I think it said that the GMD system has some like 14 times, I think, the coverage uh, of, of the SM32A uh, system. So curious to hear you talk about um, how that plays into the overall architecture. And then, and then the last thing I would just um, note is that, you know, we, we've moved into this era of great power competition. So the priority for the Department of Defense is obviously deterring um, major powers, China primarily, Russia secondarily. So interested to hear um, how um, missile defense continues to develop to contribute to that in the regional context in particular for hypersonic defense. Very excited about things I'm hearing about the department moving in the direction for hypersonic missile defense. Um, but then also, again, homeland missile defense, it's a policy decision as we bolster homeland defense. Right now, we're still primarily relying on strategic deterrence for deterring the major powers in that context. But General Hyten did um, mention that we need to continue advancing missile defense as we consider the, de the evolving threat from major powers um, when it comes to the threats to the homeland. Um, and so those are on um, my radar, pun intended. Um, and, and also, you know, just I want to keep an eye on the budget because I know that even with the the Department of Defense always has a pressure downward on funding, but then now, especially in a global pandemic, there's going to be, I think, temptations for, for Congress to, to want to cut from other programs. And um, the Missile Defense Agency budget is still a tiny part of the overall um, Department of Defense budget. And so it's important, I think, um, to empower diplomacy and all the other good things that we're doing that we make sure that we continue to robustly fund the Missile Defense. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, so I'm going to dive right in now on um, some of the issues that uh, you outlined for us. Um, so first thing I wanted to ask about, um, in some of my research, I've been looking at the issue of aging, aging kill vehicles on our fleet of ground-based interceptors, um, especially since the RQ program got canceled, as you mentioned, um, and how this problem could eventually converge with an advancing North Korean threat, um, risking a potential gap in U.S. ability to defend the homeland from North Korea. To maintain the GBI fleet until the NGI is fielded, I know that Congress has appropriated money for a life extension program to improve the reliability of our current GBIs. Admiral Hill, I'm wondering, can you talk a bit about um, the upgrades that MDA is working on to ensure the viability of our interceptors over the next decade and describe your confidence in our ability to defend the homeland until NGI arrives? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, Rebecca kind of for, for setting the table on a whole host of issues, all of which I, uh, I think about on, on a daily basis. Uh, but the one thing that I, that I do spend a lot of time thinking about and my team uh, as well is the viability of the fleet. Uh, and like any fleet of weapons that were built over time, there's a number of configurations. And so in a perfect world, it would be a singular configuration and you could just continue to update that. But we have the challenge that any weapons program would have is, you know, different configurations that have to keep pace with the threat. And you do that in a number of ways. You, you mentioned uh, aging uh, kill vehicles. Uh, you know, if you look at the complexity of any warhead or any kinetic warhead or, or, kinet, or a, uh, um, a kill vehicle, uh, it, it's, it's, it is a marvel of technology when you think about what's in it, right? But then you think about what could age, right? There's rubber O-rings. There's propellant. Uh, there are thrusters. 
there is uh, high-end technology uh, for the seeker. There's a nose comb, right? All of those things that that when they sit, uh, you know, in a uh, in a cell in the missile field, they're very well protected there. But you know, there's just the natural aging that occurs. And so the smart thing that you have to do to the program, which we have been doing and incorporating over the last few years, is to go in and uh, replace what I call one-shot devices, uh, you know, anything like a swib or a battery that could go bad. You have to constantly monitor those. You want to make sure that the O-rings are greased. I mean, some very simple grunt work kind of things that have to be done. And it's not easy when you're, when you're in a silo up in Alaska, right? And so one of the great benefits of building out the new missile field is it gives the combatant command flexibility. So when you do de-emplace a round, you have a place to go put it. You have a missile assembly build, building there on site where we can do repairs there and do the kind of things I just mentioned, checking propellant, you know, changing out those if you need to. If you've got uh, tanks or you've discovered some issue in a flight test or some issue through testing, you can go in and incorporate fixes and then get them back in the silos so that we maintain uh, the kind of defensive capability that the uh, general public uh, relies on on a daily basis. The other thing that's, um, you know, often uh, forgotten, but it's, it's also important in the world of uh, weapons engineering is the constant uh, you know, iteration of the software uh, configuration across uh, the different configurations. Uh, we are collapsing down the numbers of configurations in terms of how we handle the software so that they all have the same capability against the same threat space. And you can do a lot of fixes within uh, software. You can do a lot of change, modifications, and improvements uh, to deal with advancing threats within the software. So there's, there's robustness and capacity built into those rounds that allows us that flexibility to increase their uh, capability against uh, specific threats as we, as we go downstream. Um, and then the other thing that we recently did, uh, you know, thanks to the plus up from Congress, and I tell you, it was a very generous plus up and it was a timely one, because what we want to do is continue to keep the booster line running hot so we can procure more of those. So the goodness of having more boosters allows us to then remove around and just, uh, you know, just to kind of simplify a booster and a kill vehicle. Uh, if you remove that round, change out, put a brand new booster on it, uh, you will have just the nominal uh, performance increases that come from a new booster, but it does allow you to now have an existing asset that was once in the field or has been in the field for a while that contributes to your stockpile reliability program. There's nothing more realistic in determining the aging of a system than to use the actual system that's been in the ground. And you can bring that out and make that part of your reliability program. Most reliability programs, particularly for new, new programs, are all analytically based. So when you actually bring in now real hardware and you're testing that and you're testing whether it's aging or changing out parts and seeing how they react or running uh, the, the software uh, in a hardware in the loop to, against different threats, it really builds your confidence without ever having to fly. And then, of course, once we have a, a flight test mission, uh, it gives us the opportunity now to, to be in that real world actual environment to see how it performs. And then anything that we see there, whether it's a small anomaly or a large issue, we can go in and fix. Uh, nothing drives me uh, more nuttier than uh, when people uh, start to um, you know, criticize the fleet for a, a flight test failure that happened 10 years ago. I will guarantee you that anything we found from 10 years ago has been fixed and rectified. And so um, I have great confidence in that fleet. I think if you talk to uh, General O'Shaughnessy or General Van Hurt coming in at uh, NORTHCOM, they'll tell you the same thing because uh, they're very close with us. Uh, in fact, we ask permission every time we move something uh, there in the missile fields uh, for repair or for an upgrade. Uh, that's probably enough uh, you know, based on the question you asked. Thanks. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Um, how do you see it, Rebecca? Do you have anything to add um, on how concerned we should be about our aging kill vehicles um, as, as a North Korean threat advances? No, I think the Admiral answered the question um, 
better than I could. Um, I, I would just put a couple of things that I would just want to flag, though, is, um, you know, I, I think some of some of the initiatives that that the missile defense agency is is tracking to try to improve um, the overall uh, system, um, they're good, but we still kind of are at a, a race with the clock. And um, and I, I I've recently hosted. Um, uh, Assistant Deputy Assistant Secretary Rob Super as well, and and he talked about this as well. At, you know, we we're doing our best to assess the threat and and to make changes that we need to to select the GMD program to make sure that we're um, uh, making sure that the GBIs that we have in the ground are uh, reliable and and um, and and still going to do their job and that we have great confidence. And I think everybody. Um, who's in a, in a position to, to speak on the subject so they're confident in the, in the current state of the GMD system to take care of the current threat against North Korea. Um, but it, but it, the, the threat continues to progress. And so I think that the timetable right now for, uh, for NGI is, Admiral Hill, may, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's still 2028 is when we're looking for the, the next generation interceptors in place. And um, and so then we're now we're talking about the underlay, but because of COVID, we we even had a flight test delay, I believe, for the SM32A, um, which which pushed that then to the right. And so I'd be curious to know kind of if how much COVID has affected other kinds of flight tests or supply chains or some anything else that we um, are tracking. But um, I'm I'm still concerned that the balance isn't isn't quite where it needs to be. Uh, and making sure that the United States is aggressively moving at the, the speed of re relevance, I think, is what General Hyten um, or a couple other, I think, generals have, have talked about that particular phrase. Um, so, so I appreciate Admiral Hill kind of giving us um, a primer on, on how all of those things can happen in the meantime. But, but I do think that the, there's some, it's fruitful to recognize that we, we do have an, an issue with time right now. And a race with the clock. And so looking at maybe opportunities, I've considered the possibility. I know that environment impact studies have been completed for a potential third site um, for a homeland interceptor site for the homeland. Um, and but that that would be contingent on a policy decision made on the progression of the threat, mainly that would be an East Coast threat. So the Iranian missile program, of course, the the IRGC tested their first satellite, their satellite, they, they got one into space and that was a an IRGC launch um, that, that happened, I think it was just a couple of months ago. And so their program is clearly um, moving along because that satellite, of course, uh, launch can, that, that technology can be directly applicable to an ICBM capability. Um, and so just, just wanted to kind of flag that as, um, Appreciate all of the admiral's work on making sure we, we, we stay apace, but but still concerned that, that the threat continues to progress, maybe faster than we're able to move at this point. Yeah, so uh, Rebecca said a lot, and so um, if I don't cover it, uh, you know, because she covered a lot of issues, uh, just just uh, uh, cue me, and I'll, I'll come back in. Um, from a you know, I, I guess the way to describe uh, the, the time frame. Uh, we were never fast enough, uh, in my opinion. Um, you know, the, the, the agency's built around the threat. Anytime you see me uh, give a brief, I will always start with the threat. Uh, and the threat evolves uh, very quickly. So, so we want to be able to, to, to pace it. Um, but, uh, you know, pacing a threat is hard because uh, the kind of technologies that we have to put in place uh, take time to bake. So, so the way we deal with that, I, I kind of, if I had to describe it to my mom, I would, I would tell her that you have the current fleet today. And there's a, a specific number of configurations that we've talked about that need to be upgraded. And then you have to make sure that the service life 
uh, is not just that they work and that batteries and squibs work well, the propellant works well, but that they're in fact geared to go after the threat as we anticipate the threat will be. Our intelligence community is fantastic, right? So we, we have great confidence that we're designing to and making upgrades that can deal with that. I will say with great confidence, look you directly in the eye and tell you that the current fleet today deals with the threat as we understand it today. Right. But again, getting to the next generation interceptor will never be fast for anybody. I'm probably the most impatient uh, guy on the planet when it comes to that. So we're leveraging competition. And I tell you, industry always stuns me with the kind of innovation. Uh, when you ask uh, industry to do something and our number one requirement being speed and schedule, uh, that's that's a lot. And so the government reference architecture does say, you know, 2028 as that first emplacement. So remember, that's first emplacement. We've come through development. We've come through testing. First one goes in the ground. Government reference architecture. Now that we have bids on the table and we're going through that evaluation, uh, I may give you a different story uh, the next time we talk, which is it's accelerated. We're going to be able to do this faster. Right. So, so that's that's one of the benefits of, of competition. And so we're going to know more. We don't know enough today because those bids actually landed last week. And, and so so we have work to do to, to get to the award and really understand what the true schedule will be. And oh, by the way, when industry comes in and says, I can meet this date, we adjust the contract to that date. And so we're, we're going to drive to that. So that's how you, you have the you know, this this perceived gap in the middle, which is normally defined as reliability. Right. So if, if we do the kind of job that you expect us to do to increase reliability, drive out, extend, to extend the life for as long as we can, and we, through the power of competition, bring in the first delivery of the next generation interceptor, I think we're in the right place and we are going to be right where we need to be uh, to, to handle the threat. Uh, so I'm confident we can go do that. Now, what else are we doing? And, and Rebecca kind of got into that by asking about flight tests. And so I'll, I'll answer the question about the, the impacts of the pandemic. Um, I will tell you, I was very frustrated back in March uh, when we went to uh, full telework, and we needed to do that, take care of our people, take care of our teams. Um, but that aside, we were ready and postured to go to the Pacific to execute something called Flight Test Maritime 44, FTM 44, which is the first Aegis weapon system engagement against an intercontinental ballistic missile. So long range ballistic threat being engaged by a ship that's maneuvering with the SM3 Block 2A missile. So we did get the target on station. So the target's out there in the Pacific and it's ready to roll. We were lucky enough to, to have a couple people who live there who are constantly doing, uh, you know, in this case, you have to make sure you take care of the batteries during that uh, long uh, time frame as we march up to when we'll get it done. Our plan right now is to, to get that uh, test under our belt uh, before the end of the calendar year. So we're on track to do that. A lot of unknowns still because of the pandemic. Uh, if you look at the latest uh, uh, constraints on movement of people and equipment uh, in the Republic of the Marshall Islands, who are working with very closely, you know, it's like a 21-day uh, wait. Uh, and Hawaii is uh, talking about doing, uh, you know, even longer extensions. And so it, it takes a lot of people to execute these tests. But right now, we're still uh, on path to get it done by the end of the year. And that'll be a pretty important test. Uh, you know, the congressional language says to uh, do a defense of Hawaii scenario, uh, do it with the ship and do the feasibility of the SM3 Block 2A. The, the test is constructed right now to exactly do that. We're gonna really stress the SM3 Block 2A way outside of its design space. It was designed for medium and intermediate range. Now we're going against a long range intercontinental ballistic missile. The analysis says it will be successful, but uh, nothing is real to any of us until we actually uh, get the empirical data from being out on the flight range. And we're gonna come across several uh, time zones on several different ranges flying the same ICBM target that we used in the most recent GMD test. Um, and so when, when we have success there, we're not done. 
right? There'll, there'll be upgrades required to the missile based on threats that I talked about before. Uh, we'll have to certify the, the combat system. And then we've got to work very closely with the Navy about, uh, you know, where these ships would deploy and, and how fast can we increase the production line on the SM3 Block 2As to get those uh, out to sea and, and where we need them uh, to uh, uh, add that complement to the ground-based system. Uh, one last thing that I'll uh, just kind of help uh, uh, kind of put things in context for you when we talk about either the underlay or what I call layered homeland defense. You know, if you think of Patriot and, and its ability to defend a city, and then you think of Thad and its ability to defend a state, and you think of Aegis with an SM3 being able to defend a region, and GMD was designed to defend the whole country, you know, and, and you imagine those as bubbles of protection or the shield uh, across the country. To me, it's a no-brainer to have that sort of defense in depth. I grew up on ships, and we have long-range missiles, medium-range, and short-range missiles for a reason. Uh, we, we go from self-defense to regional defense out to the theater defense, and that's exactly what, we, what we're uh, putting in place uh, for, for the country. So if we succeed with Aegis, then we'll go right down the path uh, for that, and we'll have you know, that, that sort of capability so NORTHCOM can decide you know, where they want these assets placed uh, to provide that sort of layered uh, defense. Um, so that was a mouthful. Um, I'll stop there to see what I missed. Um, yeah, so, so let's stay on the topic of, of the underlay. You actually um, took my next question, uh, which is going to be on the upcoming test. Um, so on that, um, the, the Haskins-SAS defense authorization bills both include provisions that would require the department to begin answering a number of questions about the underlay, um, essentially how the department would put math to the concept of, of an underlay uh, before proceeding. So Admiral Hill, should the technology, um, the SM3, uh, against an ICBM test proved to be feasible, what are some challenges you expect to face in deploying Aegis or eventually even THAAD systems to defend the homeland? Um, and you started to touch on this, since both THAAD and Aegis have a limited protected area, how, how do you decide where to position these assets? Yeah, that, that, that question is probably more appropriate for a combatant commander to answer, but I can give you sort of the, the technical challenge uh, for us. So, uh, again, yeah. if you go back and look at the congressional language, and, and, and I, I really appreciate the way Congress did this. They're letting us crawl before we uh, walk and then run. Uh, so we're going against uh, what I call a naked ICBM. So it's a simple ICBM, and what that means is no countermeasures. It's not going to pop off a bunch of crazy stuff, right? So it allows us to take a missile that wasn't designed for that space and just go after that target. It's going to be very stressing because of the very long range that it flies and the error that it builds up when it, when it flies over. So we'll see how we do. Uh, when we once if we get that under our belt and that goes well, that allows us to now start to think through that architecture and start working more closely with the warfighters to determine where they would position, say, a ship. Right. Where, where would you want to have that ship in a, in a defense of CONUS or defense of Hawaii or defense of Guam against ICBMs? If that's if that's what you're uh, fighting against. And so there's work to be done there. Then we want to uh, march up to another test where we would test against a very complex ICBM one that uh, has a lot of separation degree, one that has a lot of uh, countermeasures, and we want to make sure that the, the, the system in total from the, the, the space assets to the radar to the engage on remote capability that passes that information to the ship, that the ship can actually sift through all that and say that's the RV and that's where the missile is going to go. So that's, that's challenge number one. I think challenge number two, when you think about the layers, is the engagement coordination between those different layers. So let's just say that step one is a ship uh, off the coast uh, as a complement to GMD. Those systems today talk already, but they're not talking in terms of being layered defenders. And so if GMD, for example, decides he's going to wait this first shot out and let the ship take it, we have to have the communication network to go do that. 
we have the technical architecture with command control battle management, the CTBMC system, but in that context of layered defense and engagement coordination, which means I'm going to hold so you can take this one. And how did I do when I took this one? That sort of engagement coordination needs to be done. Now, we're doing that today on Aegis ships. They do engagement coordination amongst each other. The integration work that we're doing with that and Patriot is all extensible to that problem. But we still need to do that kind of engineering and that sort of architecture work. Rebecca, do you want to weigh in on this and the, the challenges we, we might be able to explore for underlay? Sure. Um, I appreciate what the Admiral said about the, the technical um, challenges and opportunities, and I thought it was really helpful um, as he explains that you know we're we're not we're not trying to make each system do what what the other systems do. These are complementary systems to provide a layered architecture similar to what we've done globally. We have we have a global architecture, and systems intercept different kinds of missiles. From different directions and in different phases of the missile's flight path and so we're, we're trying to we're looking at kind of taking that larger model and kind of using it to bolster homeland defense protection and so i think that makes sense um, i think the more we try to think about how you know i've worked i worked on capitol hill for years and then in the think tank world and you know so i think people sometimes think that that, that maybe the messages we're trying to make some of these interceptors do what GMD or what the GBI systems do, and that's not really what, what's going on. We're, we're pro providing a, a complementary um, added pr protection for certain parts of the country, and I think it would happen in, in phases. It doesn't always have to happen all at once. We don't have to solve the whole problem. Um, I, I would just say that, it, that I, I foresee a, a po political challenges on um, on you know, Congress always wants to vet, vet these kinds of things. So even though it's Congress that wanted the SM32A test, and then whenever you start talking about which district it's going to be in, where is it going to go, and that kind of thing, that 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 is a political challenge that takes a lot of debate and conversation. And so, um, just tracking that as, as we look at it as an as an interim solution to the maybe the lag that we have on homeland defense protection as we work on NGI. I think that the problem there might let might be less technical and more political um, as we move forward on timing. Um, the, the other thing that I that I wanted to kind of just just kind of throw out there as we think about, and I know that the the topic of this conversation is really it's homeland defense, but as we saw in the national defense strategy and in the missile defense review, it's becoming a little bit blurry about homeland and regional, not just in the kinds of systems that we're able to apply in in those contexts. But also Hawaii is really out there. It's a it's a China challenge. Guam, I mean a China challenge in terms of it's in that area of responsibility. The North Korea challenge, it's in that area of responsibility for um Indo KCOM. When you start thinking about the 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 how far out there it is and how close to the the adversary. And and Admiral Davidson has called, you know, he's repeatedly kind of hit the table, pound the table about how Guam is American soil. And so we should be looking at this. You know, and thinking about it in terms of it, its homeland, in terms of American soil, and so um, would also love to hear the admiral talk about um, that particular challenge, maybe as we think about it, and the homeland defense radar Hawaii, and how that can be, how how that will technically help us, not just in that region, but the broader homeland defense architecture as well. 
so I'll, I'll agree with you that uh, it nothing's ever just technical. Uh, I, I would love to live in a world where I could just uh, you know, go go work on that, but there, there are uh, just the realities of uh, the democracy, and 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 I'm okay with that. Um, so, uh, and, and I think you're absolutely right uh, that homeland defense and regional defense that they they converge. Um, in fact, we, when I first got here, um, our budget was broken down in homeland and regional. And I had a hard time uh, separating that out and having that make sense uh, since I'm always trying to explain our budget to everyone. So we actually broke it down according to our priorities, support the warfighter, develop and deliver, and then uh, deal with the advanced threat. And, and you can you can handle that better. And in fact, if you go drill down under those three categories, then you'll start to see this uh, sort of sense, uh, you know, detection and control and engagement systems. And, and then you can kind of guess, you know, where the uh, regional and the homeland uh, systems are. But, but I think they converge. I think... The threat also converges. You know, when you look at maneuvering high-speed threats, um, and, and people, uh, I guess last year or so, I was questioned a couple of times saying, well, how can you take an organization that's uh, focused on ballistic uh, missiles and, you know, pivot over to do uh, hypersonics? And I had to remind folks at the time that in the end game, a ballistic missile is coming in at hypersonic speeds, and many of them are maneuvering. So it's, it's not new to us. It's not new to, to our team. The architecture may be different, and the requirements for sensing those because of the maneuverability earlier and the more global coverage they can have that are outside of the existing sensor architecture, that, that becomes our challenge. So I think it is always first about the sensor architecture, and sometimes it does have to be purpose-built. You've got to look in space for a ballistic target. Uh, hypersonics right on the edge of the atmosphere and cruise missiles are going to be down low. So you, you have to be able to do that 360 coverage, you know, from, you know, surface uh, up, up through space if you're going to be successful against uh, the converging threat. And so when, when you talk about sensors on Hawaii, I, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time out there when we were first, uh, you know, citing uh, the HDRH and the department's made a decision, um, you know, Right down the path of, if you think about the, uh, again, the formidable nature of these threats, we need global coverage. And, and you know, General Hyten talks about it a lot. Uh, I'll say it, too, that if, you, if you're going to have a maneuvering threat that's unpredictable, you need to be up high looking down. And that's really the only way you can get global coverage is from space. And so the department had to make some hard decisions. Do we uh, stop gap uh, here uh, with another, another terrestrial-based sensor, or, or do we go to space? And so it was it was a really tough decision. Um, you know, that it's still a discussion uh, today on the Hill. I don't know how that's going to play out, uh, but I do believe that, uh, you know, my mother's from Hawaii, by the way. So uh, it is the 50th state and we're going to protect it. Uh, the current sensor architecture and GBIs today protect Hawaii against the existing threat. Uh, we are going to have to think differently as that threat uh, continues to become uh, more complex. I also believe Guam. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with uh, Admiral Davidson. In fact, my team works closely with him daily. In fact, I'll be meeting with General Menahan tomorrow to, to talk through that architecture for defense of Guam because it is so important. Uh, it's a major strategic area. Uh, aside from being American soil, uh, it'll play a major role if anything goes hot in that theater. So uh, you talked before about how you can start small and phase your way in. Uh, the conversations that we have a lot, uh, and we don't have full agreement on this, is you could start small. If you're going to uh, do a full defense of the CONUS against cruise missiles, maybe you start with one particular area and work your way out and expand that architecture once it's proven. You can do the same thing on Guam. In fact, you could use the architecture on Guam really as that place to experiment with the latest and greatest and then grow that and extend it and use that uh, someplace else. I think we're at that point now in terms of technology and the, and the kind of uh, systems that we have today that are extensible elsewhere that you could start 
uh, protecting a place like Guam, you can move that to CONUS if that's where you need it. You can take it to some other theater, some other command. Command will probably even do it differently. And um, so this whole dynamic force employment uh, effort as part of the national defense strategy that you see all the services executing right now today, uh, we're learning from that. And I think it's showing that we have a lot of flexibility in the systems that we have now and the ones that we're planning for. And uh, I think that covers most of my notes I took from Rebecca's talk. Um, so, so I want to get in, get more into the issue of sensors. Um, so something I think we all agree on is the importance of the space sensor layer. Um, the top recommendation in my recent report is to sufficiently fund and stabilize uh, this program to move up its deployment as soon as possible. Um, and as you mentioned, sir, um, General Hyten recently talked uh, to Rebecca actually about how a space sensor layer can help eliminate holes that we have in our network of big radars deployed around the world. Um, so I'm wondering, Admiral Hill, can you explain to us uh, the capability that uh, space sensors will provide to help bolster our network um, of sensors around the world and how, how that capability is, is different from um, what a radar like um, the Homeland Defense radar in Hawaii might provide to the warfighter? Yeah, that, that's a great uh, question, uh, Peggy. And the, uh, the, the way I think of sensors is that you, you want to you keep them all. Right. So sort of like Rebecca's comment about the complementary nature of Aegis or THAAD uh, to the GMD system. Uh, when you add space sensors, then you're complementing what you have, uh, the terrestrial based sensors or the sea based sensors that are maneuverable. We have a great sensor architecture out there today. And in fact, we leverage space uh, on every test uh, and it's part of the architecture for any sort of real world event. And to kind of put it simply for you, you know, that initial flash you see that that's that, you know, you can call indications of warning, right? That usually comes from space. And then as the uh, as the threat uh, comes to its boost phase, it'll, it'll pass through the face of a radar so we can get a, a more closed track on it, something you can use for fire control. And then you go through another sensor that maybe will do the discrimination. And that's our fancy word for pick out the lethal object or pick out the RV. And now, now you're guiding to that, right? So uh, all the systems basically work like that. So we have a space architecture today. What we really need is to fill out that tracking and discrimination layer uh, globally, right? So there, there are specific areas in the world where we have the, the coverage uh, from launch uh, to intercept. What we need is to have that global coverage for that maneuvering threat. So something that's unpredictable and space buys you that. And so when I speak of the hypersonic uh, and ballistic uh, tra tracking sensor system, the HPTSS, which is part of the overall national uh, space uh, architecture, uh, that is specific to tracking and fire control level quality data. Um, and, and that's a real important thing. If you're a geek like me, um, you kind of get into that, right? Because you, you, you can go uh, use a very simple flash to kind of give you a general area where something is. But if you're going to put a weapon on it, uh, you need fire control quality. What I, what I mean by that, and I try, I'll try not to get too geeky on you, you need to understand the error in flight, both in position and in speed. And, and so if you can do that, and that's what we're going to need out of that space layer so that we can feed a combat system that can do the fire control, do the equation and launch the missile and guide it to, to target. So, so that's really what the future brings to us is global coverage, number one, uh, that still leverages and fuses the data from the other sensors we have around the globe and feeds a weapon system. So it's a little bit different than you know the way we're doing it today, but uh, it's, it's, it's the future. And, and it does open up uh, our ability to defend across a much broader uh, array of threats. Um, Rebecca, do you want to jump in on that or? Yeah, sure. So I know I'd love to. I mean, I, I would just say just to provide some of our viewers who might not be familiar with the, um, the how much this issue has has been uh, 
discussed and debated uh, over the last couple of years. Um, it, it it's something I know that Congress Congress supports the the space layer. There's been some broad, very encouraging bipartisan support for for the HPTSS. Um, and it's really been a matter of how do we prioritize these things. And in the beginning, I think right out of the gate, uh, you saw folks from 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 OSD, from OSD policy, and others in the Department of Defense really kind of hammer this as a number one priority. But then with the hefty price tag that comes with it, and also not not being quite certain about what it's going to look like in the larger space architecture with the development of the Space Force now, the Space Development Agency, and how it's going to play a role, that it, it got kind of set back and the department just, you know, there was a disconnect between the rhetoric coming out of senior defense officials and then what was actually in the budget request. And then Congress would come back and put some money in, in it, thankfully, and to, to kind of keep the program kind of moving along. Um, but but I, from, my, from my perspective, I mean, I think this is such an enormous priority that even before we have interceptors plugged into the HBTSS for the hypersonic interceptor capability, for even that piece of it, even having the ability to be able to see better and see the birth to death um, tracking of these maneuvering uh, of missiles, it would be uh, just critically important for deterrence, um, just to be able to see where these things are being are coming from and where they're going. Um, and so it's something that we just absolutely have to have. Um, and so just want to foot stomp that, that I really desperately hope that that um, shows up in this next uh, budget cycle. And I know. General Hyten said that it was going to be something that he was going to advocate for from his perspective as well, too. Once again, he did that when he was STRATCOM commander as well. Um, so you, you just got to have that in addition to the other kinds of sensors that we do have, but having that, that advantage from space, especially for the sophisticated threat. And then last point on that, Admiral Hill, you mentioned that, you know, the, 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 the threats aren't neat and nice for us in terms of it just being a clear ballistic threat. And then you have these other you know, the hypersonic threats that sometimes even the ballistic missile threat does some challenging things for us. It's not just a neat, nice, predictable um, ballistic challenge for us that it can be. And so you've got this blurring, this challenging uh, threat that continues to, to become more complicated. And also what we've in the past considered as a matter of policy to be rogue state actor threats. And we kind of put those in a bucket versus the peer competitors or the major powers the Chinas and the Russias, that those kinds of capabilities, because of missile and technology proliferation, we should not expect there to be such a clear difference between the kinds of, of threats that North Korea or an Iran can pose and the peer competitor threats. And so, um, you know, we, we have to continue to improve uh, the, the, the kinds of things. That's why the next generation interceptor is so promising, because it's a, it's a super, it's a super GBI, and it's going to give us uh, a new kind of, it's not just a matter of reliability, but it's supposed to, based on the requirements that I've heard of, um, do much more as a matter of capability um, than our current uh, missile defense um, architecture. And we need that because the threat just continues to move along into the next you know, years and decades. So we are almost out of time here and I wanna get to a couple of audience questions. Um, so I have a couple of good ones right here. Um, if you don't mind, I might um, throw two at you, Admiral. Um, the, the first is on um, boost phase capabilities. Um, where are we in, in this area? Um, why don't we have um, boost phase intercept capabilities now? And how much of a priority is this for MDA? 
Um, and then another question is on what you think of the importance of a multi-object kill capa capability for NGI. Oh, th those are uh, two uh, great questions. Uh, you know, if you go back and look at our mission statement, it says three things, right? We're, we're layered defense organization. Uh, we are protecting the United States for deployed forces and allies. The last piece is all phases of flight. Uh, that mission statement's been around for, for over a decade, and it was meant to be a bit visionary and meant, meant to make guys like me coming into the job feel a lot of pressure uh, because we primarily uh, engage in the mid-course and then we engage in terminal. Uh, obviously, the further back you go into the threat trajectory, the, the better off you'll be. We, we do need to get to boost phase. Um, we had gone down the path for a period of time uh, on using directed energy uh, from high altitude, high altitude to get us out of the atmosphere and then high energy so that we could stay outside of uh, any uh, surface to air missile uh, ranges uh, from, from a country. That should start to scare you a little bit because uh, boost phase scares me a bit uh, because it just gets so close to being a strike operation when you think about it, right? So you have to have very exquisite uh, indications in the morning. You've got to um, have a track while you're in boost phase. And, you know, if you can go look in Jane's fighting ships or, or any other document, it's about 90 seconds, right, from, from launch to the time that you burn out. Uh, any ballistic missiles kind of along that path. So it's a very, very fast game. So that means whatever you're using for uh, boost phase has to be there. And so if you look at a North Korean geometry for a trajectory that's coming to the United States, I'll let I'll leave this as an uh, exercise for the student to figure out where, if you're in an aircraft, you have to be. And it's not a place you're going to be very comfortable being. Um, so we, we do need to continue to invest in scaling of lasers, which is what the department's doing today, uh, scaling in terms of power and then scaling down the size and weight so that we can be up high and use high energy to get there. I think it's pretty far away. Uh, we've had lots of discussions about uh, fighter jets and the use of uh, different missile types and maybe directed energy for boost phase. But again, it's a CONOPS issue that I, I still have discussions with the different command commanders of how we go execute that. It's a very, very tough mission. Um, and I think if, if we do it at all, it will be post first attack. So if we, if we take and defend against a first wave and we're able to get strike forces out, then boots phase is probably in that mix of, of, of later, but it's certainly not something we want to do first because it, it really is uh, so close to being a first strike that it's a little scary. But technology is very hard to do. The concept of operations are uh, very, very hard. Uh, Multi-object uh, kill vehicles, um, I tell you, it's, uh, that, that's a complex world, but I tell you, you've got to meet complexity with complexity. And, uh, and if you look at any of the threat projections uh, just in the unclass world, it'll scare you uh, about what's coming in on the front of some of these uh, missiles, even for rogue nations. Uh, the technology is proliferating, and uh, I would bet that uh, the uh, intelligence community wouldn't be at all shy to tell you that uh, we're gonna, we should expect to see multiple reentry vehicles uh, on ballistic missiles uh, and eventually on other uh, types of uh, delivery vehicles, which means uh, if you want to fight back and, uh, and have any uh, uh, depth in your magazine, you're probably going to have to fight back with multiple kill vehicles. So I, I think it's an important part to, of our future. So I think those are the two questions, Patty Jane, how did I do? You did well. Perfect. Um, so we are, we're almost out of time here. Um, Rebecca, do you want to close us off with I don't know, any thoughts on those questions or any final final remarks? Sure, I would love to. I'm hoping I would have one last swipe at it just because I want to make sure um, uh, that I make the point too that just to emphasize for if there's congressional staff watching, um, et cetera, too, that um, as a matter of policy, one thing the Ad Admiral had mentioned um, some of the things that we're, we're doing in the regional context, homeland context as well. But um, it's, it's important to remember that, that we need our allies to do a lot 
of this work, um, not not just in terms of basing, um, but that too, in, in terms of basing and, and, and cooperation, um, because telemetry matters and geometry matters, and you got you got to you got to have these things in the right place at the right time. Um, but also, they're the, they're working with us on um, wargaming these exercises and on developing the technology. The Japanese um, have been, I think, you know, just a um, really terrific uh, partners as we develop, co-develop the SM32A system. And so even as they they pause, as they reconsider kind of what their plans are for Aegis Ashore, or maybe having some other kind of configuration using the Aegis Weapons Platform for their own protection, um, and maybe expanding what the scope of what they want it to do to, to, to defend against um, Chinese missiles or, or something else that's a decision for the Japanese people to make. Um, the Israelis have been great partners with the United States, obviously the Poles and the Romanians. And, and so just to, just to continue to foster and cooperate on those, on those things, because, you know, the, the, the better that we can do that, the better we can um, have better protection for our, not just our forward deployed forces, but, but, but for the American uh, people in the American homeland, uh, as well. So did, did want to make that that one point um, that, that that is something definitely worth continuing to cultivate and continuing to pursue. Well, I think we're ready to wrap up here at Admiral Hill. Do you have, do you want to close us off with any final thoughts? Uh, th thanks again, uh, Patty Jane, for, for the time. And Rebecca, always uh, great seeing you, uh, really stimulating a conversation across the board. Uh, I think I'll close the same way Rebecca did, because I, I normally in any brief I give will close with the international cooperation uh, discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, last week we completed uh, an operational Arrow 2 shot uh, with the country of Israel, uh, build their warfighter conference. That, that confidence, that was a uh, massive success. Despite the pandemic, uh, we, we got it done side by side with our Israeli partners. Uh, we're meeting uh, this Thursday night uh, again. Uh, with the government of Japan to help them through their decision. And I think they'll make a good decision once, and, and they're, they're really looking at a lot of different things and I respect their, their decision time and they'll, they'll go do that. So our international partners really are important. It is that force multiplier uh, that we have when we're engaging around the globe. And this is, missile defense uh, really is a global matter and will continue to be a global matter. I just sat down with my team earlier this morning looking at 2045 architectures. And when you look at that, uh, it, it, is, it is a global game. And so uh, thanks again for the time today, Patty Jane. Really appreciate it. And Rebecca, great seeing you. And I'll look forward to the next time we have a chance to talk. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you both, Admiral Hill and Rebecca, so much for your time. Um, and thanks to our audience for joining us for what I thought has been a great conversation.